From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Wade Menezes. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Tuesday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Father Wade is in the house, literally in the house today, live in studio with us. If you'd like to talk to Father, the number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 Two seven one two nine eight five, and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at one two zero five two seven one two nine eight five. You can always send us an email. That email address is openline at ewtn.com. I'm Jack Williams, the lovely and talented Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Kubensky and Jeff Burson handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Tuesday, Father Wade Menezes, I think you should start traveling with your John Deere model so that it can always be over your shoulder no matter where you are. That's a great idea. I don't know if we'd have to get permission for that, though. Continuity is everything. I almost wore my UK uh, uh, hoodie today, but I, you know I got to be careful about. I'm in Alabama country, so I got to yeah. be careful. You know these SEC teams. You know, there's great competition between them. Yeah, yeah. So that's fine. You're you're a you're a you're a you're from the land of fruits and nuts anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, you don't. Know you're, lo- you're a poser no matter what you wear down here. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm no longer a Californian. I was teasing my brothers about this uh, the, a year ago this past July because as of July 2021, I have lived in Kentucky longer than, than, you lived, than I've oh, lived wow. in California. So That's how about that? Else. That yeah. tells you how long I've been a, a father of mercy. Say, I thought you were going to say it's because you exercise some good judgment. <laughs> Well, that too. I, I stayed with the Fathers of Mercy. I'd say that's very good judgment. Awesome. Well, it's uh, as we, I don't know where, October for me has just evaporated. I know. And, me too. And um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's, as we draw near to this, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Uh, it's my birthday month, which quite frankly has never been that big of a deal for me. Biggest deal this year, though, is my 60th birthday this year. Oh, praise God. But the fall weather is my favorite season. I love the fall weather. You know, I love football. I love all of that good stuff in the fall. And then as we get to the end of October, um, we have two very important dates on the calendar. Um, And one of those you want to talk about here at the beginning of the program. Yeah, well, a week from today, Jack, All Saints Day uh, is November 1st. So we'll talk about that next Tuesday. But this Tuesday, I want to talk about the the day after that, which is November 2nd, the commemoration of all souls. So again, on November 1st, we rejoice in the example of all the saints, the members of the church triumphant and their intercession for us before God, right? But on November 2nd, we members of the church militant turn ourselves toward God in petition on behalf of the members of the church suffering. 
the holy souls in purgatory, also known as the church penitent, those departed souls who are assured of eternal life in heaven, but must first undergo further purification in purgatory to prepare, prepare them for the vision of God. We trust in God's mercy to deliver the holy souls in purgatory, still detained there, into the joy of his presence, the beatific vision or eternal beatitude in heaven. Through the prayers and sacrifices we offer up for them in the here and now. We remember these holy souls, these poor souls, these members of the church suffering or the church penitent, and their need of our aid, confident that they in turn will remember us before God when they come to see him face to face. In fact, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 958, regarding uh, the the state of the church known as the, the church suffering or the church penitent, says this, In full consciousness of this communion of the whole mystical body of Jesus Christ, that is, the church triumphant in heaven, the church militant still living on earth, and the church suffering in purgatory, the church and its pilgrim members still living on earth from the very earliest days of the Christian religion has honored with great respect the memory of the dead. And because it is a holy and wholesome or pious thought to pray for the dead, that they may be loosed from their sins, she offers her suffrages for them. That was quoting 2 Maccabees 12, 46. And then it ends with this, Jack, very very profound, I think. Our prayer for them, meaning the, the prayers of the church militant for the church suffering, our prayer for them is capable not only of helping them, but also of making their intercession for us effective. So, Do the holy souls in purgatory have an effective intercessory power for us? Yes, provided we are praying for them. And that's a question that's often asked, you know, Father Wade, uh, can the holy souls in purgatory pray for us? I'm I'm asked that, for example, on the mission ban and preaching missions, especially during Advent. Yes, again, according to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 958, our prayer for them is capable not only of helping them, but also of making their intercession for us effective, implying thereby that their intercession for us is not effective otherwise, again, unless we are first praying for them. But the question remains, why even pray for the dead? Well, because it is a mandate given to us to pray for the living and the dead, for example, the seventh spiritual work of mercy. And why do the holy souls even need our prayers? Well, because of the whole purpose of purgatory, the reality of temporal punishment that is still remaining on the soul, not yet perfectly purified at the time of their earthly death. Members of the church suffering can no longer merit for themselves. That is, the deceased person can no longer merit for himself or herself individually. But we can pray on their behalf to help alleviate their suffering, right? And again, if we're first praying for them, they become effective intercessors for us. Now, I want to talk a little bit about November 1st through 8th and how we can gain a plenary indulgence for all the dead by praying in a cemetery. In a typical year, the Church grants a plenary indulgence, Jack, for the holy souls in purgatory to those who pray for them in a cemetery on any day from November 1st through 8th, the week of the Solemnity of All Souls and All Saints. Uh, That would be the work, going to a cemetery to pray for them. This includes the particular uh, November 2nd plenary indulgence as well that can be received for the Holy Souls in Purgatory by simply visiting a church or oratory where there are not graves present. Uh, That's another way that can be done, but only on November 2nd. Uh, But November 1st through 8th, we would want to go to a cemetery or to a columbarium on parish ground, somewhere where the, the faithful departed are buried, and recite at least an Our Father and a creed on their behalf. A plenary indulgence remits 
it's all temporal punishment due to sin. It must always be accompanied by a full detachment from sin by those seeking to fulfill the work. A Catholic who wishes to obtain a plenary indulgence must also fulfill the other ordinary conditions of an indulgence, which are sacramental confession, reception of the Most Holy Eucharist, and prayer for the Pope's intentions. Sacramental confession and reception of the Eucharist can occur up to 20 days before or up to 20 days after the day the Indulgence Act was carried out. And that's very, very important. Now, for the last two years, in November of 2020 and November of 2021, the Vatican extended that plenary indulgence for all the faithful departed throughout the entire month of November. Now, so far, I have not discovered anything for this year, November of 2022, where the Vatican has extended that, unless it comes out within the next few days. But as as of right now, uh, it would be November 1st through the 8th that we want to strive to fulfill this. So again, the, the doctrine and practice of indulgences in the Church are, are closely linked to the effects of the sacrament of penance, right? What is an indulgence? The Catechism tells us an indulgence is a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which the faithful Christian who is duly disposed gains under certain prescribed conditions through the action of the Church, which as a minister of redemption on behalf of Christ, her founder and bridegroom, dispenses and applies with her authority, her magisterial authority, rooted in the Apostolic College, the treasury of the satisfactions of saints uh, and of Christ himself primarily, of Christ and the saints. And indulgence is partial or plenary, according as it removes either part or all of the temporal punishment due to sin. The faithful can gain indulgences for themselves, or apply them to the dead. But for the November 1st through 8th uh, plenary indulgence uh, spiritual work option uh, for the dead, it would be offered for the dead, not for oneself. Huh? And so the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us very clearly in number 1471 and number 1472 uh, the doctrine of indulgences. And it's a, it's a doctrine that Catholics should be uh, well-versed in because it's been so abused in the past, huh? so abused or so often misused understood. Uh, according to the Church, believers have honored and prayed uh, for the dead from the earliest days of Christianity. In fact, from the beginning, the Church has honored the memory of the dead and offered prayers and suffrages for them, above all the Eucharistic sacrifice, so that thus purified they may attain the beatific vision of God, the Catechism states in paragraph 1032. So give us a call today live at Open Line Tuesday. Tell us about your holy and pious devotion in praying for the dead, the holy souls in purgatory, the members of the Church uh, suffering, the members of the Church penitent. We know that the Church also commends almsgiving, indulgences, and works of penance undertaken on behalf of the dead, so let us not hesitate to help those who have died and to offer our prayers for them. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Great book for the month of October from EWTN Publishing. 
Catechism of the Spiritual Life, A Journey into the Sacred Mysteries by Robert Cardinal Seurat. Cardinal Seurat invites you to journey with him through the Gospels and discover the origin and meaning of each of the sacraments and how each one is essential to helping you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus, foster your contemplative life, and flourish in communion with the Holy Trinity. Um, Cardinal Seurat writes about the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the sacraments of the Church, why laws prohibiting our freedom of worship are more deadly than any virus, and much, much more. Catechism of the Spiritual Life, A Journey into the Sacred Mysteries by Robert Cardinal Seurat, one of the treasures of the church, if I might interject there. Uh, It's available right now at EWTN's Religious Catalog. That's EWTNRC.com. By Catholic, shop EWTNRC.com. Um, to the phones we go. First up today is Josh in Springfield, Illinois, a first-time caller listening on Covenant Radio. Josh, you are on with Father Wade. Uh, yeah, so my question was basically a lot about Marian theology, and so I was, out, I was outside last Thursday praying the rosary outside of uh, Planned Parenthood in our local, in Springfield, unfortunately, and... Uh, we had our rosaries out, and we were praying, and we were kind of being grilled by a Protestant evangelist there about, you know, our defense of, of like, he was saying, you know, well, it's heretical, and, you know, we're uh, praising a false god, you know, Mary, in this in this instance. Uh, what kind of scripture do we have to back this up? I know in Revelation it talks about a queen of heaven. In Luke, uh, we hear Gabriel talking to Mary, but what what is there? Well, well, to to defend the Marian doctrines and why we esteem her with hyperdulia, which is the greatest of veneration, which is different from adoration, uh, we look simply to the scriptures. So, for example, in Luke's Gospel, hail full of grace, uh, without sin, is the root of the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, that, that she received a particular grace to be preserved from the original sin, when conceived in her mother's womb, St. Anne, because she would be the one who would hold the office of the divine maternity. Uh, and so that there's an example right there. Uh, we also know that the Church teaches very, very clearly in her Latinized Greek terms of adoration versus uh, veneration, uh, the three levels as the Church teaches. So this would be an argument to let the individual know, you know, very charitably as you give your apologetics, we don't adore Mary as we adore the Blessed Trinity. So Latria, we give we give adoration to God as the first three of the Ten Commandments, commandments tell us in the Old Testament, um, adoration properly speaking. But then the Blessed Mother and the saints uh, would receive veneration, not adoration. And then the 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 Latinized Greek term for that is is dulia. Uh, veneration, and then hyperdulia, hyper in the Greek meaning the greatest of, the greatest of veneration, um, would be the Blessed Virgin Mary. Now there is a, a fourth category that the Church doesn't officially teach, which would be the third category of dulia, but one can have theological conjecture about it, and uh, Father Don Calloway really goes into detail beautifully about this in his Consecration of St. Joseph book, and that would be proto-dulia, which would be the Latin phrase for, the Latinized Greek phrase of uh, the first of veneration, uh, which would be St. Joseph. So Latria is adoration, three divine persons and three divine persons only, and it's adoration properly speaking, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then Hyperdulia, which would be the greatest of veneration, would be the Blessed Virgin Mary alone because of her singular office. And then uh, Dulia, 
uh, would be the angels and saints. But in between hyperdulia and dulia, you could also have theological conjecture or debate about protodulia, which would be Saint Joseph. Okay. Uh, now, I would ask this friend, you know, we're simply asking our Blessed Mother to intercede for us, one who we have faith has already entered into heaven. Uh, your own mother, who you hope to one day have in heaven, uh, would you not ask your mother to pray for you here on earth, presuming she's still living? Hey, Mom, I have a job interview. Can you offer up a few prayers for me? Uh, so if, if, if you would do that for an earthly mother, why would we not do that for the mother of Jesus, who is God, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, the mother of God, which again is, is all uh, deeply rooted in Scripture itself? So, um, you know, you want to be able to articulate both from Scripture and from reason why the Catholic doctrines are reasonable. There's a reasonability about our Catholic faith, and, and that's something that's worth, uh, you know, conveying to the person as well, as opposed to just the strict uh, scriptural passage, although the scriptural pa passages are definitely there. Do you have a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church in your home, the Universal Catechism that was universally promulgated in 1992 by now St. John Paul II? The reason why I ask is because there's two beautiful sections on the ex-cathedra doctrines on Mary, which would be her Immaculate Conception, and her assumption into heaven, precisely because she was free without free of sin. So, and entered, we have the faith that she entered heaven immediately. There was no need for purgation, again, because of the Luke passage of, of being full of grace. Um, she was also the first one to request her son to manifest his divinity at the wedding feast of Cana. So we see Mary's intercessory power there, and the church fathers say, that's in God, John's Gospel, chapter uh, 2, the wedding feast of Cana. And the church fathers say that she wanted to intercede for the young married couple whose wedding feast this was precisely to protect them from embarrassment. So, you know, we, we stop and think, why was Mary so concerned that, that they had run out of wine? I mean, did she want her second glass of Merlot? I, you know, Jack, I don't think that's the case, you know, but she... They don't grow Merlot grapes in the Middle East. What's okay, wrong well, with you? whatever kind of grape, <laughs> red or white they have there in, in the Holy Land uh, that they're known for. Um, you know, she wanted to protect them from embarrassment. And so we see, you know, they have no more wine. And Jesus' response to her is, mother, or woman, not mother, woman, woman, why is this such a concern of yours that it should also be such a concern of mine? That, you know, that's a pretty strong response. And, and what does she do in response to his response? Well, she does what any great mother would do. She totally ignores him. <laughs> and instead, she turns to the wine stewards and she says, hey, do whatever he tells you. I mean, if that's not intercession, I don't know what is. And again, it's because she wanted to protect the, the young married couple from embarrassment. So whether it's her immaculate conception, her assumption, her freedom from sin, and St. Paul and St. Peter in their epistles, it, heaven is, is possible immediately upon earth, upon death, from earth. Uh, you know, purgatory is only God's plan B for us, if you want to call it that. His plan A for us, as I've said many times here on Open Line Tuesday, his plan A for us is to go straight to heaven when we die. That's his plan A for us. And we have the faith rooted in Scripture that, that, that our Blessed Mother entered heaven upon her earthly life's expiration, uh, her assumption. So, you know, you want to give the scriptural passages, but you also want to convey the reasonability, like, you know, asking your own mother for prayers if you have that job interview, etc. So I hope that helped you out. Great, great you know, question, and thank you so much. You know, Father, something else that you've spoken about before uh, is that these attitudes toward the Blessed Mother were commonly 
held by everyone everywhere for a millennia and a half. Right, and and it's also interesting, Jack, I'm glad you said that, because Luther himself did not want to... Big Marian devotion. Huge Marian devotee, did not want to separate himself from the Marian uh, dogmas, but uh, it was his successive generations of Lutherans who broke off from one sect of Lutherans... Lutheranism to to another sect of Lutheranism that eventually got the way from the Marian doctrines, and we see this in the fracturing of the church yeah. in the in Protestantism. So, great, great question. Thank you so Thanks, much, Josh. We appreciate it. Next up is John. He is in Fort Wayne, Indiana, listening on the Amazon Echo. John, you're on with Father Wade Menezes. Hello. Yes, um, I'm currently enrolled in RCIAA. I'm a 58-year-old male that also uh, uh, has a pending application with uh, Franciscan uh, University in Steubenville. And my, my question, I, I am drawn towards the Catholic Church. Uh, I've uh, taken Theology of the Body course uh, as it was developed by Pope John Paul II and ha- have done extensive reading in uh, Fratelli Tutti uh, of Pope Francis, and I'm very encouraged by uh, Pope Francis' dialogue with the Patriarch in uh, 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 Russia of the East, uh, Eastern Orthodox. And m- my only concern, uh, I've found an RCIA director that 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 stipulates at, at confirmation that I would have to acknowledge the. Uh, uh, Catholic Church is the one true church, um, but I, I, am I correct to infer by the dialogue Pope Francis is having with Eastern Orthodox that that RCIA director is rather anomaly that there there is great respect uh, for other Trinitarian expressions of Christianity? Yeah, there absolutely is, and that's precisely why we celebrate the chair of St. Peter every year on the Church's universal calendar, February 22nd. It's for the reunification of all Christians. Now, you're talking about the Eastern Orthodox, which are separated from Rome, but which have valid orders. Uh, The split between East and West around 1054 was not one of doctrine, it was one more of jurisdiction. Rome versus uh, Constantinople, modern-day Istanbul, right? Uh, Don't confuse, and I'm not saying you are, but for the benefit of our leaders, I don't want anybody to confuse the Eastern Orthodox that are separated from Rome, but have valid orders from the 23 Eastern Rites that are in union with Rome. Okay, so that's the first point I want to make. 23 Eastern Rites in union with Rome, all right? Uh, It's precise because of the closeness that, that you've read in the encyclical, as well as in um, uh, you're, you're getting intimation from, from your RCA director or, or teacher, that we hope for that reunification under the chair of Peter. Uh, it doesn't mean that they could still not have their own patriarchs, but the patriarchs would still eventually answer to the successor of Peter himself, whom our Lord gave the power of the keys to, an expression used to describe what happened in Matthew 16, 18. Uh, uh, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will never prevail against her. What you loose on earth, Peter, shall be loosed in heaven. What you bind on earth, Peter, shall be bound in heaven. So it's like St. Thomas Aquinas teaches in the 13th century. Uh, A a body without a head is a monster. So realize that should the Eastern Orthodox 
reunify with Rome, they would still have their own patriarchies and their own patriarchs and their own liturgical expressions, like the 23 Eastern Rites in union with Rome have their own liturgical expressions separate from the Roman Rite. Uh, and that's important to remember, too. And, and this really shows forth beautifully the katholikos, where we get the Greek word of, of where we get the English word Catholic, meaning universality. This is where we get the universality and the beauty of the church in its true liberal sense. And I don't mean liberal meaning uh, heterodox. I mean liberal meaning free of free of, and, and beauty and it's in its multifaceted varieties of expression, which shows the different the different lands, the different countries, etc. So, so I would say you're on the mark, but realize what the whole picture is calling for, for the reunification of Peter and what that means. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. One open phone line. It's up for grabs at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next up is Barb in the great state of Nebraska listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Barb, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Um, We are studying about the Holy Spirit in Bible study at this time. And in Romans, um, it's talking about the Holy Spirit groaning. What actually does that mean? So I can take that back to my group tomorrow and explain it. Somebody thought maybe it was about speaking in tongues. Well, it, it, it means the fullest, fullest of expression of one living adequately and thus fully their, burst, their best version of self in a life of God's grace. That's... That's what's important there, uh, that the Holy Spirit is pleased with the efforts the individual is putting forth to to live that best version of self, okay? Um, you're talking about Romans 8.26, in the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express, right? Uh, that's, that's a beautiful thought, that because of our weakness, even though we're striving as members of the Church Militant to fight the good fight, as the New Testament says, to stay away from mortal sin, to want to partake the sacraments regularly, especially those two of the seven that can be received repetitiously and frequently, uh, Sunday Eucharist and monthly confession, let's say, striving to live the three eminent good works, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, uh, the 14 works of mercy, the seven corporal works of mercy, the seven spiritual works of mercy, collectively known as the 14 works of mercy, um, striving to, to incorporate all these beautiful things in our lives, uh, renew our love for the creed and the 40-plus truths that are presented in, in the, the 12 pillars of the creed, etc. Uh, and, and all of this, all of this, whether one be single or married or a consecrated religious, this is what we're striving for. And the, 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 the seal of it all is a life of charity, a life of love, because faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And that's, that's what's important here. Uh, John Paul II um, had a great love of this passage, and especially he would, he would often make reference to it during his World Youth Day, speaking to the young people. 
when the World Youth Days were held roughly every two years in different cities across the globe, peppered across the globe, that he would he would strive to explain this further and 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 what the exegesis is on that. You know, uh, we we draw near to the Holy Spirit through devotion to Mary, the saints, uh, the holy souls in purgatory, understanding your your mission as a member of the church militant, united with the church triumphant in heaven, and united as well with the church penitent or the church suffering in purgatory. Um, uh, active ministry a be, uh, to the best of one's ability and so forth. It, it's, it's, really, it's really striving to live your baptismal promises and your confirmation sacrament, your, your baptismal and, and confirmation sacraments, uh, to the nth degree, uh, all the while shunning sin, especially mortal sin, and thus, because of that, r- remaining in a state of grace, which mortal sin severs. So in a nutshell, the Holy Spirit is beckoning us in all of this, beckoning, calling, uh, uh, pulling us towards him, uh, uh, because we are weak and we do fall, and this is why we need the frequent sacraments of Eucharist and confession. And he's right there to help us get back up each and every time. So in, in a simple layman's terms, that's, that's how I would describe the, the groanings of the Holy Spirit who's always there for us. Thanks, Barb. And if you'd like to revisit that answer, we'll encore the program tonight at 10 p.m. Eastern time right here on EWTN Radio. And if you go to EWTN.com slash radio, or if you go to radio on the EWTN app, you can pull up this uh, uh, archived episode of today's Open Line Tuesday, and you can play Father Wade's answer for your Bible study group. Thanks so much for the phone call. Next up is Russ in the great state of Delaware, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Russ, you're on with Father Wade. Hey, Father. Hello. Thank you, Russ. Hello, Russ. Thank you for your call today. Yes, uh, I really enjoy you. I listen to you on TV also, see you there. But uh, my question is the Apostles' Pardon. My wife passed away Christmas night, uh, this past Christmas and um, but I had a priest come out, and I mentioned uh, I'd like to have the apostles pardoned, and he he gave it to her. And if I'm not, I might have this wrong, but doesn't that do away with basically going into purgatory? But I wasn't sure. Yeah, great question. And, uh, can I mention one other thing? Aren't we lucky as we become older, we have a chance to ask God for our pardon for us? And these young kids, let's say somebody. 15, 16 goes out and kills somebody and then gets shot. He has a mortal sit on him and never went, never had the chance to ask God for the pardon. How do, how do we understand that? Okay, well, first of all, let me define the apostolic pardon, uh, which is one of the five constituent elements of the so-called, quote, end quote, last rites. Okay, um, as a person draws closer to the doors of death, uh, there is one blessing in particular that Holy Mother Church reserves for the most sacred moment when, when death is imminent and near, uh, and that is the apostolic pardon. It is a pardon that can be given by any priest and has the special power of removing all temporal punishment due to sin. So at the moment of death, they will not have any temporal punishment to atone for. Um, the Catholic Encyclopedia explains exactly what the apostolic pardon is and its requirements to perform it, okay? And, and here's what it says. The anointing of the sick is ordinarily succeeded by the conferring of the apostolic pardon. Uh, the blessing of a plenary indulgence is attached to it, and it can be gained 
only at the hour of death or when death is imminent, according to the, the healthcare professional. It is conferred in virtue of a special faculty granted to the bishops and by them delegated quite generally to their priests. The conditions requisite for gaining it are the invocation of the holy name of Jesus, at least mentally, acts of resignation by which the dying person professes his willingness to accept all of his sufferings and reparation for his sins and submits himself entirely to the will of God. Now, this is all presuming the person at the moment of death or at the time of death is sui mentis, a Latin for of their own mind. You may have a person receive the apostolic pardon who is not sui mentis, who is not of their own mind, because maybe 40 minutes earlier they were in a terrible car accident, and now they're in ICU, unconscious, maybe in a coma, either naturally or an induced coma by the medical professionals. So they're not able to think think of these requirements, and in that case, we just give it to God. And the Church, on the person's behalf, uh, supplies these these needs. But if, if one is sui mentis, if they are of their own mind, it's important to have these uh, aspirations in mind and thought uh, while they're receiving the apostolic pardon. Uh, the words of St. Augustine, Augustine are, are in good point here. However innocent your life may have been, no Christian ought to venture to die in any other state than that of a penitent, one who is sorrowful for what they've done, right? The apostolic pardon is typically preceded uh, by the sacrament of confession, again, if the person is able to go, uh, to the extent that the dying person is able to participate in the sacrament. The priest then says the last blessing, or uh, the so-called apostolic pardon words, through the holy mysteries of our redemption, may Almighty God release you from all punishments in this life and in the life to come. May he open you, to you the gates of paradise and welcome you to everlasting joy. Amen. That's one of two options. Uh, that's given in the in the anointing of the sick book for priests visiting the sick. Um, the other one is, uh, by the sacred mysteries of mankind's restoration, may Almighty God remit for you the punishment of the present life and of the life to come, and may he open to you the gates of paradise and admit you to everlasting happiness. Okay, so... Um, this is the apostolic pardon. Now, I said earlier that it's one of five constitutive elements of the so-called last rites. What are the other four? Well, the anointing of the sick itself as a sacrament, which is one of the two sacraments of healing. Number two, the other sacrament of healing, confession. Number three would be the prayers of commendation for the dying, which includes the litany of the saints being prayed over the person, which is a beautiful thought that Holy Mother Church commands her minister to pray the litany of the saints over you while you're dying. Um, and then uh, number four, Holy Viaticum, one's final Holy Communion, if they're able to receive. Again, they may not be able to receive. And number five, the apostolic pardon. So anointing of the sick, holy confession, prayers of commendation for the dying, which includes the litany of the saints being prayed over you, holy viaticum, and then the apostolic pardon. Now, if the person is, for example, non-sui mentis for whatever reason, um, they're in the hospital and ICU with all kinds of apparatus in a, in a medically induced coma, or they're simply just out of it, they're dying at home, they have the grace of dying at home with hospice present, but they're just out of it, they're just completely unconscious. Uh, it's not a coma per se, but they're just near death and they're out of it. The beauty here is that the anointing of the sick doubles as confession. It doubles as confession. Then if the person should recover, praise God, then they're bound to still confess any mortal sins that they're aware of that have never been confessed before. But if they don't recover, the anointing of the sick through the magisterial 
authority of the church, as the church teaches, doubles as confession. Then they can still receive the commendation of, of prayers for the dying, which includes the litany of the saint. They, saints. They couldn't receive the Holy Viaticum, but they could still receive the apostolic pardon. So in a case where the person is non sui mentis, uh, either artificially or naturally, as the cases I've described, the only thing they could not receive would be Holy Viaticum, one's final Holy Communion, because they did, in essence, receive confession because the anointing of the sick doubled as confession. Uh, so I hope that answers the question about the apostolic pardon. It's, it's a complete removal of any temporal punishment due to sin that's already been forgiven mortally or venially, either through the sacrament of penance for the mortal sin and the venial sin in other ways, either through the sacrament of penance or through other means that forgives venial sin, like the penitential rite at the beginning of Mass, the 14 works of mercy, the three eminent good works, and, and, and whatnot. Now, for the 15 or 16-year-old that you described who dies in a state of mortal sin, Okay, objectively, they committed a mortal sin. I think you use the example of shooting somebody, uh, presuming it wasn't self-defense. But uh, did they know that it was wrong? Remember, for a mortal sin to be present, three things must be present. It needs to be grave matter, which shooting is when it's not in self-defense. A grave matter done with fullness of knowledge is grave matter and done with deliberate consent of your will. Grave matter, fullness of knowledge, and deliberate consent of your will. All three have to be present for a mortal sin. Why do I say this? Because if any one of those three was missing, then it could have been a venial sin in this particular subject, although objectively it's a mortal sin. So objectively, always and everywhere, it's a mortal sin, objectively speaking, like abortion. But subjectively, in this particular subject, let's say it's a 15-year-old girl who receives an abortion because of her coercive boyfriend. There was no fullness of will there. She actually wanted to keep the baby, but his coercive tactics had her get the abortion. So in that case, we have the objective mortal sin of abortion, but subjectively, she did not have fullness of will. In fact, she wanted to actually save the baby and keep the baby. So in that sense, subjectively, it's a venial sin. So you got to semper distingue, Latin for always distinguish, right? As St. Thomas Aquinas tells us to do, semper distingue, always distinguish. Uh, but this is why it's important for parents to instruct their children in the faith. The parents are the first educators of their children in the faith, and we can't forget about that. But a lot of children come from broken homes. That's another reality, fatherless homes. And the father's meant to be the Christ figure of the home, the priest figure of the home. So I hope that helps you out, uh, Rust. Does that kind of answer your question on the apostolic pardon? Yes, Father, that was very good. And uh, I, what I just worry about, like these gang wars and things, that these yeah. people know what they're doing. They do have the mortal sin. Do they have, at the time they die, the soul either goes to heaven or hell or purgatory. But yeah. if they live this crime life at this young age... Right. Well, the catechism's what? clear that only one thing sends a person to hell by their own doing, okay? Because God sends no one to hell. One goes to hell by their own doing. I believe it's number 1034 of the Catechism. And what is that one thing that sends somebody to hell by their own doing? Purposeful, unrepentant, mortal sin, which means that all three elements were present. Grave matter done with fullness of knowledge that it was grave matter and done with deliberate consent of your will anyway. Purposeful, unrepentant, mortal sin is what sends a person to hell by their own doing, because God sends no one to hell. This is why the, the spiritual practice and the spiritual life of the daily examination of conscience is so important. Uh, if, if At least done at the end of the day, when you look at your whole day generally, and you close it with what? An act of contrition. How about the midday examination of conscience? That's important too, although you see that more with consecrated religious. But with laity, we should have the staple practice of the daily examination of conscience that we close uh, 
uh, with a, 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 an act of contrition. But the same with the midday examination of conscience, where you look at a, it's called the particular exam, because you're looking at a particular vice you're trying to root out or a particular virtue you're trying to advance. I talk about all this, by the way, in both, both books, Overcoming the Evil Within, The Reality of Sin and the Transforming Power of God's Grace and Mercy, and also The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. In both books, I talk about the importance of monthly confession, Sunday Eucharist, um, the, the daily examination of conscience. We need to have a strong spiritual life. We need to defeat evil by taking head-on such things as an act of prayer life, an act of sacramental life. The devil hates the sacraments, right? Especially the Eucharist. And so these are things that cannot be forgotten of. So, so Russ, thank you so much. And if you haven't gotten those two books, I, I ask you to maybe think about that. Again, Overcoming the Evil Within, The Reality of Sin and the Transforming Power of God's Grace and Mercy. And... Um, also, uh, The Four Last Things, A Catechetical Guide to Death, Judgment, Heaven, and Hell. If I can give a, a, a witness point right now, uh, I recently had an EWTN employee contact me. Uh, he wanted uh, 14 books for his family members of The Four Last Things to give them as Christmas presents as, at the beginning of Advent. At the beginning of Advent, because Advent focuses so much on, our, on the first coming of Christ and his second coming, but also... The intermediate coming, which is when we have our particular judgment, when we die. And he's giving them early at the beginning of Advent, telling his relatives, these are Christmas gifts for you. For This is my Christmas gift to you. And your gift back to me is simply to read this book because I care about your soul. And I want to one day see you in heaven. And when he made that request to me, I thought... Now, this is a Catholic who knows his faith. This is a Catholic who loves his family. This is a Catholic who loves and cares about the souls of his loved ones. And that's a beautiful thing to do. He's given them the book as a gift and saying, look, your gift back to me is simply to read it, to understand the importance of the afterlife, and to live what I call in the book eternity-minded. Because like you're right, Russ, gang members don't live in a way that is, that is eternity-minded. They live in a way that is simply temporally-minded, and the devil loves that. We're called to live eternity-minded. And by that, I don't mean in a morose, macabre kind of way. We're always fascinated with death. That's not what I mean by eternity-minded. I mean it in the way that the previous caller had her question about the groanings of the Holy Spirit. When I answered her that that simply means living the best version of self, active sacramental life, an active prayer life, again, whether single or married, etc., uh, we want to live eternity-minded in such a way that, that, that when we do fall, the Holy Spirit knows our potential, and He's groaning to get us back in a state of grace. That's our goal. That's what I mean by eternity-minded. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. We want to say hello to a longtime member of the EWTN radio family. Our friends at Trinity Catholic Radio are celebrating their 17th year with EWTN. That's KYMJ FM 103.1 in Carroll, Iowa. Congrats to my friend Dave Prenger and his great team at Trinity Catholic Radio from all of us here at EWTN Radio. I also want to encourage you to check out the Sunrise Morning Show tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Eastern Time. Anna and Matt have uh, Kathleen Carr, who's going to talk about the upcoming Catholic Art Institute Conference. They'll also speak with Carlo Broussard of Catholic Answers and Gary Zimak talking about Jesus' advice to a morning widow. The Sunrise Morning Show tomorrow morning and every morning, 6 a.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN. Next stop is the great state of South Carolina. Abe is a first-time caller listening on St. Paul Radio. Abe, you're on with Father Wade. Hey, Father Wade. Hello, my Abe. Question, my question is um, about the, the the prayer, glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. 
And I grew up saying, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be a world without end. Amen. And then, you know, with the liturgy of the hours, it's slightly different at the end. Then I went to uh, Eastern Catholic Church for a while, and they say, now and always and forever and ever amen. And I started really reflecting back to that first um, way of saying the doxology prayer, and I was wondering, but it always confused me, like, what, what, what do they mean by that? As it was, I'm assuming now that's the Trinity, but is there is there a preferred prayer or way of saying that prayer, or would you like to expound on like how it got to be like that and what sure. you think about it? Sure. So, so many Catholic prayers, as you said rightly, especially the Glory Be, uh, which is a Trinitarian prayer, Glory Be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Many Catholic prayers in the English language uh, conclude with the phrase, world without end, or alternatively with forever. Secula, yeah, secula, seculorum in the Latin, forever and ever. Amen. Uh, the Glory Be, again, is one prayer that really denotes this, you know, quite clearly. Uh, the phrase is repeated so much that many Catholic Catholics may not even notice it, which is a sad thing, especially during the celebration of the sacred liturgy. Um, yet for some, it, it's a confusing phrase, like for yourself, and this is a great question, especially when considering the idea that this world will end, right? Paving the way for a new heaven and a new earth, which that phrase is intimating, along with intimating the greatness of God who is without end, and whose image and likeness were made in, and called to share a beatific vision with him in that new heaven and earth, thus we end up sharing in that new world without end forever and ever. Amen. That's the nutshell of the answer right there. Uh, the phrase is an English translation of the Latin words in secula seculorum, as Jack just so wonderfully articulated, and great Latin pronunciation, by the way, Jack. Uh, it appears in the Latin Vulgate um, translation of the Bible a number of times, and also has a Greek equivalent in the New Testament. Uh, and then the, the thrust of the meaning then would be just that. It's, it's God who is forever and ever, and the new heavens and the new earth that we look to uh, to one day share in as well in glory with the very God whose image and likeness we're made in. So for prayers to end with this view, quote, end quote, for prayers to end with all of this reality in view, quote, end quote, is a wonderful thing. And that's the thrust and purpose of that phrase in the life of the Christian, especially the Catholic Christian, who probably has the richest tradition of using that phrase uh, at, at the end of prayers. I think that's important. Uh, and, and that's that's it in a nutshell. Does that help you out? Yeah, it really does. I, Great. I started wondering, I was, I started wondering if, if there was any evolution in that since the, the liturgy of the hours kind of doesn't it, it, have the without end it meant. Yeah, it, w- it would be scriptural. I would say it would be first and foremost scriptural. Even in the Greek New Testament has the phrase where we get uh, uh, forever and ever, amen, as opposed to the more Latinized uh, world without end, which is more of a hearkening to the book of Revelation. But the fact is, God is forever and ever. No beginning, no end, right? And the second thing is, he's made us temporally in a, in a, in a historic uh, time frame, but yet the immortal soul reunited with the body at the second coming of Christ, we're called to share that eternity with him, and he's made us in his image and likeness to be able to do so. And so that's that's the thrust of it there. Great question. Thank you so much. Next up is Sean, a first-time caller in Toronto, Ontario, watching us on YouTube today. Sean, you're on with Father Wade. 
Hi, Father Wade. Um, I'm a new Catholic, and I'm wondering if I commit a mortal sin in the afternoon, but confession at my local parish is only available in the morning, should I drive 25 miles across the city to another parish that offers evening confession, or am I good to wait until the next morning? That's a great question, and, and with such a question, we want to be able to guard against scrupulosity. I'm not saying you, you have scruples in this question. I think it's a fantastic question. And so to save us from scruples, we look to what the teaching of the Church is in regards to mortal sin and confession of it. She teaches that, number one, it definitely has to be confessed according to kind and approximate number. Okay. Secondly, she teaches we're bound to confess the mortal sin as soon as is reasonably possible. As soon as is reasonably possible. Do you have nothing going on that evening? And you can make the 25-mile drive to that other neighboring parish that has evening confessions? Great. Maybe you want to do that and grab yourself a nice meal and celebration on your way back home. You know, uh, do you get off at 6.30 that night at work and you're 25 miles in the opposite direction from your home, from the other, from that parish that offers the evening confession, so it would be a 50-mile trip, uh, and you just got off work at 6.30, and the confessions are from 6.45 to 7.45, you'd be rushing it, you'd be speeding, you'd be putting yourself in danger, others in danger. That doesn't sound too reasonable for me. Uh, in that latter example, you might want to wait till just the next morning when you go to daily Mass anyway, and you can go to confession uh, before your daily Mass. Remember, when we ever commit a mortal sin, as soon as this is reasonably possible, we get to confession. That's the Church's teaching. But we forget this teaching that's part of that teaching, and it's this. Whenever we commit a mortal sin, we still make an act of contrition immediately. A perfect act of contrition, okay? As, which is meaning, meaning we're most sorry for the sin because it's offended God. An act of imperfect contrition is when we're sorry for having committed the mortal sin because of what it threatens us with, uh, an eternity in hell, okay? We make an act of contrition immediately after the mortal sin, even before we get to confession. And we forget that point. We, we tend to have this mentality that the mortal sin uh, is only forgiven sacramentally, and that is correct, but the Church asks us to prepare for that sacramental forgiveness by making a perfect act of contrition now. So, in the latter example that I made, I would make the perfect act of contrition soon after committing the mortal sin, as soon as you recognize it as such, and get back to confession to confess it as soon as is reasonably possible. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners. And as Jack and I hold up our St. Joseph Terror of Demon pins, we say, St. Joseph Terror of Demons. Pray for us. On behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, our producer, Michael McCall, call screener Matt Gubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Jeff Burson. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Father Mitch. Until we get together then, God bless.